In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So let me summarize our last two times, and then and then we can continue part three. So just to remind ourselves of what we have discussed. So in the first talk, we covered a few things. We said St. Sanchez was trying to tell us why he is writing this book. How many people were saying that many different ways for the creation. So he was telling us from the beginning, creation has one way, that all the creations has been created out of nothing. And this called the general grace. And then man was given an additional grace to be created in the image and likeness of God. Then he was ask, uh, answering the question, why repentance is not enough? So it was proven by him that repentance can do maximum two things. The first thing is, if possible, I will not sin anymore. But it will never remove the consequences of what I have done. Last week, we were discussing from chapter uh, 11 to 19, where St. Ascension was explaining to us uh, it's not only a problem of corruptibility, there's another problem of this and uh, resurrection. So today, he was showing us from chapter 20 to chapter 32 how Christ himself came to sort out my death and to give me his, his resurrection. But before that, he was using a very nice term we need to focus on it this day. He was showing many times, as we said in the first talk, how St. Athanasius was showing we have an additional grace. And this additional grace made meet in the image and likes of God. So he was confirming, because of the fall, this image has been distorted. So what is the solution? I need another grace. He called it in, the, in chapter 20 onward, it's the grace of resurrection. So we received the grace of resurrection, as a replacement or restoration to the grace, uh, additional grace that we have distorted or lost through the fall of our father. So what we are covering today, if you look in page three, uh, first of all, he used to say it in a very nice way and even to say more than he is saying always, I am sorry that I am repeating many times. At his time, it was used to repeat yourself many times to affirm what you want to say. So he started this paragraph in chapter 20, as I said last time, 21, which means the first paragraph in the Arabic uh, translation. 20 only, it's the title of the, or the number of the paragraph in the English translation. So let me share with you 21. We have spoken above, in part, as far as was possible and as far as we were able to understand the cause of his bodily manifestation, that it was not for another to turn what was corruptible to incorruptibility except the Savior himself. He said this many times in chapter 1 and chapter 2, but now he's saying we have no other option. We have no other hope unless the Creator himself will take flesh 
and incarnate, we have no salvation. And we have no other way to do it. At the very end, he was saying, it was not for another to raise up the mortal to be immortal, except our Lord Jesus Christ, who is life itself. That's why if you go back to First John chapter 1, from verse 1 to 4, he was saying, and life was manifested. Life was not there. But through the incarnation, life was manifested. And now this life is offered to you and to me and to every one of us. So the first thing he would like to share before going through the uh, grace of resurrection is saying he alone can do it. He said it many times before, but he is repeating it at the beginning of this uh, chapter. Then he was telling us there was a great paradox. And this paradox, in our minds, and it has no solution. But God only has the solution. And thus it happened that both things occurred together in a paradoxical manner. The death of all was completed in the lordly body. And also death and corruption were destroyed by the word in it. What does it mean? If you imagine, if you imagine we pray it many times, but sometimes we are not thinking of it. We call it your life-giving death. How come? Life-giving death. This is the paradox. That's why he's saying here, in himself, this of us all was completed. And at the same time, this was destroyed. That's why when we celebrate the Feast of the Cross or the Passion Week, we say, when death died. Which again, it looks uh, a paradox. So he was showing there was a great paradox. How come someone is going to die this shameful death and by his death, will complete something and defeat it in the same time. And this is, again, the practical part of it. Am I living this, this now? Sometimes I feel when I humble myself or my inner man is dying, it means I lost my dignity. It means I am not respectable, respected enough by my wife or husband or kids or whatever it is. It's telling me, when we humble ourselves, when we took, when we accept to, take, to have the mind of Christ, as St. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, it's something absolutely different. It means this paradox is going to be sorted out through the mystical life and the mystical power of Christ himself. In chapter 21, he started to say it clearly. We need the grace of resurrection. So he was saying, Indeed, with the common Savior of all dying for us, we the faithful in Christ no longer die by this as before according to the threat of the law. For such condemnation has ceased. Again, I'm asking myself, and you ask yourself this evening, is this condemnation is not anymore in front of my eyes or not fearing me anymore? Why? Because the condemnation has ceased. Why, when the word death is coming before me, I'm always troubled? He's telling me, no, don't be troubled because there is something seriously has been done. And this thing has been done for you and for me. Again, let us remember the creed. Who for us and for our salvation became man, died, risen, and said, why? For me, for us. So if I see the reality of what we'll profess during reciting the creed, I can enjoy the fullness of his life. Then he continued, but with corruption ceasing and being destroyed by the grace of the resurrection. So if I see myself still corruptible, still no way and no hope, 
It means this grace of resurrection is not mine yet. It's available and it's available for me and for you. It's time in each and every Eucharist to claim it. Lord, I need the power of your resurrection. That's why the church believes. When we have the communion, we have the whole life of Christ. We have the power of his death, the power of resurrection. Everything we needed is there. It makes even my perception to the liturgy in a different sense. I'm not coming to say nice hymns or long tunes or, long, or, or short tunes or long mass or, or a short mass. I'm coming to receive what Christ has done for me in person. That's why by the grace of the resurrection, henceforth, according to the mort- mortality of the body, we are dissolved only for the time which God has set for us, that we may be able to attain a better resurrection. You'll find the same thing in Hebrews chapter 11, the last verse. St. Paul was telling us all a big list of great sins. And he was saying at the very end, but they are waiting for us. Why? We need one resurrection to the whole members of the body of Christ. So first of all, to sort out the problem of this, there is a paradox. And this paradox has only one solution, that Christ will took our flesh, he took our flesh, and went into this, and there, this died. That's why we call it your life-giving death. Then he continued in chapter 21. He did it. He didn't die out of a human weakness. Why? What in your mind? He is talking to Jewish people, and Gentiles, and Greeks who are rejecting the notion that God became man. So he was telling them. Now he died. Why he died? Not out of weakness. Not because he was sick. <clears throat> That's why he will explain it in a few moments. Why he accepted to die such shameful death. Why the cross in chapter 25 he was explaining in clarity. So why he didn't die as a witness of men. Chapter, uh, verse, uh, page 4. For this reason also diseases came upon them. And weakening they die. But the Lord is not weak but the power of God and the word of God and himself life. So how he is going to die? He will never die with this sickness or diseases. He will choose to go through this death in a public way, as he will explain in a moment, to show that he is going to die in reality. And then he will ask another question, why he is not dying now and after half an hour or an hour can rise? He's saying he has to put away any doubt in any mind that he was not dead. It's just half an hour or an hour. So it was three days in public in such shameful way and not in bed out of sickness or out of anything else. So he was saying it is not out of a human weakness. I am asking myself again now. If I am in need of his power, his life, Am I able to stretch out my hand and ask him to help me? Or I feel he is there for a certain purpose. When we limit and unfortunately resize his ability in my life, I am a loser. When I see him giving the power of his resurrection, if St. Paul himself in Romans 8:11 was showing us, if the spirit who raised Christ from death is in you, then what are you looking for anymore? There is no more death. He is able to raise you from your death. Again, 
if the spirit of Christ, of the spirit who raised Christ from this is in you. St. Paul was amazed. What are you waiting more than that? That the Holy Spirit who raised Christ from death is in you. Then do you need or do you feel you miss this resurrection or this grace of resurrection? It is yours if you claim it. If you live a real life of repentance, if you see that your Eucharist every time is a reunion and regenerating this power of his resurrection in my life. Then he saying in the same chapter 22, he accepted this coming from us. Yani last week, his grace, or on Sunday, his grace, Bishop Angelus, was talking about how he took what is ours and gave us what is his. In which sense? One of these senses, he took my death. This, this were coming to our corruptible human nature. That's why he took from Virgin Mary, as his grace was explaining to us on Sunday, exactly a body like me and you, except sin, of course. So this, this was coming towards me. What are you going to do? I will take it in your behalf. And then I will kill this, and then this paradox will be sorted out. Now you have been giving this <coughs> power of rhetoric. That's why he says in chapter 22, Such action did not show weakness on the part of the world, but rather made him known to be savior and life, and that he was waited for this to destroy it. Again, waited for this to destroy it. And hastened to complete the death given to him for the salvation of all. Then he is adding, by his own death, for he had none. In his divinity he has none. But he took our mortality, our body, and then he gained or received our death in his body. But he accepted that this coming from human beings in order to destroy it completely when it came to his own body. Why? He was explaining it many times. If you imagine this is what you gain, this is what you commune in each Eucharist. I am having the power of the one who is life himself. That's why when I want to sing at the very end of the day, giving for us salvation and the eternal life. What does it mean? This power that was conquering this at the time is in you now. In each and every time you have communion, this power which vanished this, conquered it, destroyed this, is in you and is yours. Enjoy it. That's why in the very end he will tell us, now we don't fear death. The world was very fearful to everyone. But since the resurrection of Christ, no more fear. I have many even English songs to, know, to say no more fear, but for you personally. Still fear there or there is no more fear? Then he was telling us in chapter 23, he died in public to confirm his death and resurrection. He was informing those listeners, those who were shouting and screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Now you decided for my crucifixion. Now you will see me on the cross for hours. You will see me buried and you will see the seal on the tomb. And after three days, something will be differently happening. That's why he is telling us again, he's thinking of a Jew or a heathen or a Gentile who is arguing. Page five again. But if without any illness and without any pain, 
he had hidden his body away by itself, privately and in a corner, or in a desert place, or a house, or anywhere at all. And afterwards, suddenly, appearing again, said he had raised himself from the dead. He would have been supposed by all to be telling tale, tall tales, and would have been distrusted even more when speaking of the resurrection, as there would be no one at all to witness his death. He is thinking the way anyone else can think, and he's trying to argue with them. <clears throat> it was important to die and to be crucified in public in front of anyone. Then, again, he had another paradox. We never saw someone hanging uh, a gun, for example. And I'm very proud that I am hanging a gun. But why we as Christians hanging the sign of the cross, which is a sign of death? But a different death, life-giving death. He was telling us, now by his humiliation, by accepting to die on our behalf, this sign of death became the atrophy of the victory, the sign of victory for each and every one in the church. So something wonderful and marvelous happened, that humiliating this, which he sought to inflict, this was the trophy of his victory over death, that in this he might keep his body undivided and whole, and that there be no pretext for those wishing to divide the church. And then I ask myself, is my attitude today or our attitude about division or unity? Division, I am not belonging to him. Is it about holiness and sanctification or unholiness? And I'm going astray. Again, it shows if I believe in the cross. It's not about hanging a cross or having a tattoo as a cross. It is your life. Am I presenting the life of Christ did this death destroyed my death and I came through it by grace of resurrection or not? So Saint Athanasius was showing us it is not about an internal sign, sorry, external sign. It's about your own reality, how you behave based on the power of the cross and the power of his resurrection. That's why he asked after that, we have a very important, why the cross? And here again, it's the practicality of your personal life today. He gave many reasons, I will share with you only three. If you want to read the chapter, chapter 25, he was asking and answering why the cross. First of all, he was saying, to bear the curse which lay upon us. It's written many times in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that the cross, or it's a curse for, the, for this one, was being hanged in a cross. So he was telling us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, it's time to see him taking the curse on our behalf. So for if it come, for he, if he came himself to bear the curse which lay upon us, how else could he have become a curse? So the first reason he wants to be a curse on our behalf, to lift up to lift up our curse. That's why we sing it in the liturgy of St. Gregory. You lifted up the curse on my behalf. You erased the curse on my behalf. To show each and every one of us, it's time to enjoy no more curse. 
if you're still believing that you're under a curse, it means the cross is not real. It's not personified yet in your life. Second thing, he was telling us, it's time to see that he was opening his arms. Why? To unite the Jews and the Gentiles. Chapter 25 and paragraphs 3 and 4. Therefore, it was fitting for the Lord to endure this and to stretch out his hands that with one he might draw the ancient people, the Israelites, and with the other, those from the Gentiles, and join both together in himself. So whenever we look to the cross and we see him opening his arms, then there is hope. There is no way to tell me it is too late. Come and repent. Come and confess your sins. Come and wash yourself in, in my blood and rewash many times. That's why he's telling us the third one is very important. All of them are important, but the third one is very personal. He was telling us, connecting few verses together. Let me get a, say it out loud first, and then we can read what St. Essential is saying. He was telling us in one of the names of the devil in Ephesians 2.2 is the prince of air. Let us imagine this. He is the prince of air. This air is in his own, under his own authority. Then he said, when Christ was hanged on the cross, he met, he met him in his den and defeated him where he is. How I can get a benefit on a personal level today. If you imagine this is earth and this is the sky or the air, and above us is the heaven. You have one of two options. If you remain earthly, living on earth, the prince of air has authority over you. But there is another option. Again, in Ephesians 2, 6, who raised us with him, seated us with him, where? In the heavenly realms. Then I have authority over the enemy. When the Lord said, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all evil powers. It means what? You have a new position. If you choose to be in Christ in reality, you are in Christ and the prince of air, you have authority over him. That's why the continuation of the verse in Luke ten nineteen, I have given I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the hostile Lord and no nothing will harm you. Nothing. Why? Because you have the authority over your enemy. So I have two options on To be an earthly person and the prince of air has an authority over my life or an, a heavenly person. That's why St. Paul says in Philippians 3.20 for our citizenship is in heaven. If I'm enjoying and living the fullness of my new heavenly uh, uh, his citizenship, I have authority over my enemy because the Lord has given me this authority. I don't have it, I can't make it, but he gave me this authority over the enemy. Otherwise, I'm on earth and the prince of air has authority on my life. Let us read it from St. Athanasius, H. page 6 again. He's telling us, and again, if the enemy of our race, the devil having fallen from heaven, wanders around these lower ears and lording it here over the demons with him 
similar in disobedience. Through them works illusions on those who are deceived and attempts to prevent them rising upwards. About this, the apostle also says, following the prince of the power of the airy, who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Why? Because I am earthly person, and he is the prince of air, he has authority over me. The whole first book against his process, as he was telling us, how because of this earthly situation, my mind was corrupted, I was deceived, I am inventing sins, and inventing gods even. Because the prince of air has authority over me. When the Lord accepted to die on the cross to meet him in the air, he defeated him and gave me this victory. And now he lifted me up to be raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So he continued, Yet Christ came that he might overthrow the devil, Verify the air and open up for us the way to heaven. As the apostle said, through the veil that is his flesh. How he did it? Through the incarnation. He took the flesh, died on the cross where he met the enemy and conquered him for my sake. And now he lifted me up, opened the air, opened the heaven and lifted me with him, raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So why is the cross? St. Ephesus in chapter 25 said three reasons. First of all, to bear our curse. And secondly, to unite Gentiles and Jews. And thirdly, to defeat our enemy, the prince of air, and to open heaven for us, and to raise us with him, and to seat us with him in the heaven. How? Through the veil, which is his flesh. Through the incarnation. Without the incarnation, there is no cross. Without the incarnation, there is no direction. Without the incarnation, there is no restoration for man in any sense. Then he was asking one question. Why he is risen on the third day? Okay, now we knew why the cross, but why he is waiting for the third day? Again, he is trying to take this Gentile or a Jew step by step. There's a reason behind everything. But there's something very important here we need to think of it and to be to pray to be in our mind and our hearts. What is it? There's a big difference between our attempt to prove a point and our attempt to explain a point. Why in the third day? It's the divine economy, the divine plan. Then you are trying to explain it, not to prove it. It is the perfect time on the third day. Why? Because God designed it as such. Why in the incarnation was 2,000 years ago? It is the perfect time. We can find many explanations by scholars, by saints, by people who are contemplating the events, fine. But we believe in the divine economy, which is a divine plan expressed, and we have seen it in the Word of God. But we are not proving, it is only three. There is no proof. It's the revelation of God through the divine economy, through the word of God, and through the revelation of the apostle. So he was asking why he is risen on the third day. He is explaining, again, to a Jewish person or to a Gentile. You could have raised the body immediately upon death and shown, shown it alive again. But foreseeing well, the Savior 
did not do this. For someone might have said that he had not died at all. Or that this had not fully touched him if he had shown the resurrection immediately. Had the interval between death and resurrection been within as the same day, the glory of incorruptibility would have been obscure. What does it mean again? He, he remains three days in the tomb and there is no corruptibility able to touch him. To show us that he is the life, he is the author of life. Yes, he died in the flesh, but corruptibility cannot touch him. That's why he is adding, the glory of incorruptibility would have been obscure. But we saw him risen in his glorious body, the same body which died is risen in a glorified status to show us now you know the life. That, that's why we say it in the liturgy. His divinity parted from his humanity? No. Not for a single moment. He was dead and his divinity is still united with his body on the tomb. He was dead and his soul and spirit was united with his divinity through which he went to Hades to take the captives out of Hades and to bring them back into paradise. And then on the third day, he was united once more, still his divinity united with the body and with the soul, and then the body and the soul united together to give us the power of the grace of his resurrection. Okay, now, okay, we knew that he has to be risen in the third day, according to the divine economy of God and the explanation of Saint Sciences. Then what are the consequences of his resurrection? Again, a consequence for you and for me. And again, am I living? Am I living this consequence, or just I'm hearing about it in the church for many times? So he's telling us the first one: new concept of death after resurrection. It's chapter twenty-seven and paragraph two. And the proof of this is that human beings, before believing in Christ, view this as a fearsome and a terrified thing. Are you still afraid of this and terrified of it? Then Christ is not risen in you. If you are not afraid of it, Christ is risen in you. But when they come to faith in him and to his teaching, they so despise death that they eagerly rush to it and become witnesses to the resurrection over it effected by the Savior. What does it mean again? Later, at the very end, maybe we see it next week or the following week, he was telling them, we saw young men, young boys, rushing to martyrdom. Are you not afraid of this? No, there is no more this. They were not hallucinating, but they believe in the power of the resurrection. And he was telling them, this has no more power anymore. Even in the hymn of Christos Anesti, what we are saying, by his, he trembled this by his death. So we are celebrating the death of death, which is the power of resurrection, which became mine and yours. So the first consequence of the resurrection, now this is not something we fear it anymore. It's nice to say it, but it's much better if you embed it in your mind and your heart. I am not afraid of this. Why? Because I am risen with him. He raised me with him and seated me with him in the heaven. Second thing, he was giving two examples or two analogies. 
the analogy of snake and analogy of lion. Both nearly the same. He said if we know that there is a very poisonous snake or a very uh, destructive lion in a certain place, and when we are walking, we find kids playing with a snake or with a lion. He said it's one of two options. Either this snake or lion is dead, or he lost his power, or it lost his powers. That's why the kids can play with it. And he's saying this is this in the eyes of any true Christian. It has no power anymore. That's why he was saying in page 7, which is chapter 29, for one who sees a snake trampled down, especially if he knows its former facility, no longer doubts that it is dead and completely weakened unless he is prevented, perverted in mind and does not have even his bodily senses sound. The same thing for the lion. You think now, this is a celebration. If you imagine how the church perceived this, you'll find it something very amazing, but still my behavior is the opposite. Now when we say today is the feast of St. Mark, what does it mean? It's the day when he died, physically. But in actual fact, when he was sent or his soul went into paradise. So all the church saints whom we have their icons, we celebrate their physical death, which is the end of their earthly struggle. We celebrate their movement from this earthly status into paradise, waiting to consummate with us for the resurrection with us in the second coming. So the church was not weeping on their memorials, celebrating a feast. Whether he is a martyr or uh, a saint, we are celebrating their death. And even we don't say the word death anymore. It's the departure of saint so-and-so. And it became a celebration. Today the church celebrate, commemorate the departure of saint X and Y. This is the perception of the church. But why we are making it in the opposite? Of course we are humans and we can have some emotional sadness because of losing someone close to us, but still our minds raised with him, seated with him, and they have learned to see this defeated and is not there anymore. So the first consequence, our perception to this, and second one, the analogies of the snake and the analogy of the lion. Then he continued something more important, and again, it's very personal, and very practical in your life and in my life. He was telling us, sometimes we discuss the proof of the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the eyewitnesses, and the power of the preaching of the apostles. How come if it's not assured for them, they will go and accept to be martyrs for the sake of Christ? But St. Ascensus and St. Cyril, especially as our church fathers, has another proof, a way of this, Think. What is this proof? He called it even the irrefutable proof of the resurrection of Christ. It is the resurrection in you. He said, if we see people, young men and women, was living a very sinful life, and now they choose chastity and went even to be consecrated to the Lord. What does it mean? They were dead, and now they were, are risen. He was saying here in chapter 30, 
For since the Savior works so many things among human beings, and daily in every place invisibly persuade such a great multitude, both from those who dwell in Greece and in the foreign lands to turn to his faith and all to obey his teachings. Would anyone still have doubt in their mind whether the election has been accomplished by the Savior and whether Christ is alive or rather is he himself the life? As if he's telling me and you, now we don't need to say words. By your life, you can prove to the world that Christ is risen. By your growth in Christ on a daily basis, they can see Christ is risen in you and in me. That's why it's irrefutable. I believe every one of us has seen at one point someone who was too far from the Lord, whether in, even in another faith or another religion, and then he became something totally different, like St. Paul. But we have them, these people in, uh, amongst us as well. Then you believe this man was dead, or this woman was dead, and now she or he is risen. And this resurrection is irrefutable. I don't need to see the tomb, the empty tomb, and the angels, and to someone to give me a mental exercise to prove Christ is risen. No, I have seen it. And more than that, I have seen it in my life. I know where I was, and I see him every day raising me once more from another death. And he is beautifying me to be fully alive in Christ. And this is the aim of St. Athanasius and St. Cyril in a specific way. They are not trying to convince us of our right theology. They are to convince us that if we understand it properly, we live a different life, a risen, sanctified life. And this life will be always, as St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, from glory to glory. As if, if you imagine you stand before the Lord to pray in the morning and in the evening and in the liturgy every week or whatever it is, he's asking you in person, are you enjoying the glory of today, which I have given you, which is different from the glory of yesterday? Are you going to enjoy the glory of tomorrow, which is different from the glory of today? Why? Because you received the grace of his resurrection. You received the power of conversion, aiming for one thing, with Christ and Paul, in Ephesians 4.13, full stature of Christ, which means it's endless, it's infinity. Based on what? The spirit who raised Christ is in you. Based on what? That he took flesh, took all our corruptibility and mortality, and restored us into incorruptibility and immortality. Then, in chapter 31, he said, now this body, based on his body first, what he did, you became, and he became first, the temple of life. You're saying, or what kind of end should befall the body? Once the word had come to it, it was unable not to die, since it was mortal and offered to death on behalf of all, for which purpose the Savior had prepared it for himself. But it couldn't remain dead, because it had become the temple of life. Yani, what does it mean? You took from virgin very a flesh, a body like me and you. But from the very first moment, it is a, there is a unity between the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. That's why it's one nature out of two natures. So what happened? 
the corruptibility cannot conquer the incorruptibility of the divinity of Christ. So that's why this body, the first body, which is the body of Christ, became the temple of life. Still corruptible, still mortal and going to die. But his death became a victorious death. Trembled this by his death. But if could not remain dead because it had become the temple of life. It's the body of Christ. So it died as mortal because he took our flesh, but came again to life because of the life which is in it. And the works are a proof of the resurrection. Again, let us reflect on our life. I have my mortality. I have my corruptibility. But Christ now is uniting me and him to be one. So I became by grace. He is the temple of life by nature. Because it's his divinity and his humanity are united in the person of Christ. But now I'm uniting myself with him in each Eucharist. So I'm a temple of life, like him, but by grace, and he has it by nature. Can you see yourself a temple of life? It doesn't mean only something personal between me and God. When you enter your school, your home, we smell life in you. You smell something different. Because the smell of Christ, St. Paul said, we are the fragrance of Christ. It's not just a nice words to be said. No. You are a real temple of life. Because Christ chose to unite you and me with him. They can't be separated from him anymore. So, from chapter 20 to chapter 32, he's showing you and me, it's time to enjoy your newness. This is defeated forever. Resurrection is yours forever. But enjoy it. Claim it. Show it to the world. It is the irrefutable proof of the resurrection of Christ. When everyone sees our life is risen in him, when they see that every single act shows that this person is a temple of life. Why we sometimes feel you know, I'm very weak? Yes, this is my reality alone. But if you see yourself always united in him and with him, it is something totally different. Let me share with you one last thing before we conclude. St. Paul and St. John has nearly the same mind in this point. In John chapter 12 till John chapter 17, it is the last few hours and the last Thursday, the Lord is sitting with the disciples. So in chapter 12, he washed their feet. And then he made the Eucharist. And then he spoke to them. At the very end, in chapter 17, he was praying to the Father. And he was telling the, the Father, I in you and you are in me as I am in my father and my father in me. Again, he was not showing something to be nicely said. He was telling us about the reality he did in the morning. He united us in the Eucharist and telling us from now on, you cannot be seen away from me. So it's your own personal choice to keep yourself in me by a real repentance, a real confessions, and uniting yourself in me through the Eucharist, then all what is mine by nature is going to be yours by grace. My this 
will be your death. My resurrection will be your resurrection. Being a temple of life by nature, you will be a temple of life by grace through adoption. So all what the church fathers are explaining is nearly the same thing. Now you are not alone. That's why the biggest two wars against me and you, you are weak and you are alone. This is half of the reality. Without Christ, yes, I am weak and I am alone. But in Christ, I am not weak anymore and I am not alone. That's why I am always in need of him. So the whole story of the book of the incarnation by St. Ascensius is telling me and you, you are very rich. Enjoy the richness that Christ has done it for you. As we spoke last week, from chapter 11 to 19, he was showing us how he took what is ours and he gave us what is his. Based on what now, all your filth, or your sins, or your mortality, or your corruptibility, he took it on his mortal body. And then he replaced it with everything that he has. We lost it in the first Adam and has been restored for me and for you in the second Adam. May the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you from now and forever. Any comments or questions so far? Is it hard? Meshi? The book is online in English and in Arabic, so please read it. You will find it very enjoyable after you listen and just think of what I have in him and you'll find yourself very rich by the time we celebrate the feast of the natives. Let us pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Father God, we thank you for the richness that you are offering every one of us. Thank you, Lord, for the words of wisdom through your Holy Spirit from the mouth of St. Athenius. Lord, we know how poor we are, but also we are coming to claim how rich we are in you. Pray for everyone standing before you. Lord, we are not here to listen to a sermon or to read a book or to discuss a book, but are here to be enriched by your death and by your resurrection. We pray that you will open our eyes to see this reality and to live it, to enjoy it, to pray it, and to claim it. We pray through the intercessions of Virgin Mary and St. Mark and St. Nina, and hear us when you pray to you thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And now, the love God the Father, Christ, and the Son, Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go and peace with you. Munkin Nera for next week from chapter 33 till chapter 44.